Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, the comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Very much appreciate it. We have a great guest today, Mr. Aaron Weiner. He is a writer, an author, and content creator. But first, may I just remind you to please nominate us for the podcast awards. We have a link in the bio giving you the details on how you can do that. You have until July 31st to do that for us, and we'd much appreciate it. Let's get right to today's episode. As mentioned, it is with writer, author, and content creator Aaron Weiner, who's done a ton of things in the industry. He's been a script coordinator, a script manager. He talks about the differences between those, the writer's room. He's worked on a ton of different things, Ground Floor, The Soul Man, AP Bio. I think he's great, and he gives a lot of really sound advice that I think is really going to be actionable for you to use if you are looking for a career in writing. So why don't we just get right to it? Here's my chat with Aaron Weiner. You went to University of Florida. Are you from Florida, though? Yeah, I grew up in South Florida, and I was really lucky. Uh, while I was growing up, there was an incredible scholarship program that was available to people who were living in state. Uh, mm-hmm. I, at the time, had some other ideas about where I may have wanted to go to college. And I remember, uh, you know, qualifying for this scholarship and having the conversation with my parents at the dinner table of, well, you got this full scholarship to the University of Florida. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what I can say about that experience is that it was the best decision I ever made. Yeah. I had visited some of the other schools that I was was hoping to attend after going to the University of Florida and actually realized that the bigger state school was really the place for me. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed the football program there, the basketball program there. Uh, you know, we had between 40 and 50,000 undergrads. So it really felt like uh, a city that was, um, you know, built around the college. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Did you play any sports? I did when I was growing up, but not for, not for this school. Unfortunately, one of the... Uh, <laughs> One of the setbacks of going to a school like Florida is that unless you are very good at sports, uh, <laughs> chances are you're not just going to walk on the team. We actually did have a couple walk-ons uh, while I was there, but I think uh, I think they were walking on with uh, with with some skills that I maybe didn't have. <laughs> yeah, I know that you majored in poli sci while you were there. At the time, did you already know you wanted to be a writer and you want to get into writing or was this when, and this was maybe the backup plan or what, what was your mindset with, with that? Sure. Absolutely. So when I, when I was growing up, I was always the kid who was memorizing movies and TV shows and (laughs) what I was doing uh, and without maybe even realizing it was that I was relating those story beats in movies and TV shows to moments in my life at home and at school. And I would bring them up and reference them with family and friends. And I think that was when I kind of realized that I had the, uh, 
the special stuff, if you will, that goes into being a producer and or a mm. writer, uh, seeing the story in the world, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, and being able to recognize those moments uh, for what they were. Oh, nice. That's cool. What kind of shows were you getting into? Like, what, what was it that was piquing your interest that way? It was really anything I could get my hands on. You know, uh, a lot of movies that were coming out during the time. I actually, I actually finally just got around to watching uh, the, the latest Bill and Ted's movie this week. Oh, yeah. Uh, it had been on my list for a while. Really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, that was obviously a big part of my youth growing up. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just, you know, I think that time in, uh, in, in our storytelling world was, was such an important time. If you look back to those years, there were just so many iconic films. Yeah. Uh, Fair Day Off for sure was, was one of my favorites growing up. And, you know, uh, a lot of the shows that were kind of on TV at the time, and what's really nice is a lot of those shows are, are now seeing reboots and new versions. Yeah. Uh, so you get to kind of relive those those same uh, themes and, and emotions and, and arcs for the characters, which is nice. That's so true. You know, you, know, you mentioned that time period. I mean, the 80s, you had Ghostbusters and, uh, and Back to the Future and Indiana Jones and Superman and then Batman. And uh, now we are, we are seeing this resurgence or it's, you know, maybe, you know, this is just the time period for the adult versions of <laughs> a lot of those things. There's a lot of reference to those things because we're, I guess our age group is just uh, still getting catered to, or, or maybe we're just, our age group is making the stuff that's referencing those things. Uh, so there is this uh, nostalgia that uh, uh, era that w our generation is going through. And it is like bringing back the stuff from the 80s and 90s. Absolutely. And I think uh, even, even uh, greater uh, connection is the emotions and the feelings that those stories bring out in us. Yeah. You know, I, I always like to talk about uh, you know, the human experience is the real intellectual property, right? Yeah. You know, uh, how do we relate to those characters? How are those stories uh, reflecting on our own lives? And, and how are we uh, relating our, our journeys to those of the characters? And I think that's a, a great segue to actually answer your question about political science. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I knew that I wanted to have more of a, a well-rounded uh learning experience at the university. And I wanted to kind of take classes that were uh, in, in different disciplines. And so it was important to me to have a major where I would be writing and I would be thinking about, uh, you know, different ways of, of looking at different perspectives. And I think poli-sci just kind of fit for that. And if you think about it, uh, a lot of different opinions that people have in the political world are actually sometimes uh, aspects of different characters and stories. You know, uh, taking different approaches in politics can absolutely be the drives of different characters in a story. And so yeah. that was a very sort of relatable uh, and interesting, um, you know, way that I was able to kind of look at what I was doing. And uh, and so, you know, I didn't I didn't really have any uh, specific plans to pursue this career in Los Angeles until I was in college. Mm. Uh, I, I met a friend in school who. Uh, had done an internship out here at Paramount Pictures the summer before and was, uh, was really uh, impressed by the city and by the opportunity and had heard that they were looking for interns for the next year. And, uh, you know, we became friends and 
he was planning on coming out after graduation to get a job and start working. And so we made a plan that I, I would come out and, and do the internship and then just kind of see what happened. And that was almost 20 years ago. Wow. And I love that line, uh, the human experience is the real intellectual property. Um, that may not be exactly how you worded it, but I love that concept because you're right. I mean, it, it, that is what is in everything is the human experience, like what people feel, how people are affected by things. That is always in art. Yeah, and I think if you watch movies and TV shows, at least for me, when I'm watching them, those are the things that really I relate to is, is you know, seeing those characters experiencing things that are similar or not similar to my experience and, and watching them go through those, uh, those aspects of their, of their journeys. Yeah, and I wonder, because for me, I've noticed in recent years when there's a phone by my side and I'm picking it up while I'm watching something, that it takes me out of that experience. And I'm, I'm not even remembering things about movies as well because I'm not experience, experiencing that part of watching movies and television shows where, where I'm connecting and relating to this portrayal of, uh, this portrayal of hum the human experience and the human condition. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's another interesting thing to to think about is that when you know when I was a kid watching a lot of these movies and TV shows, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be bothered by other things. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, if it, it, maybe I could be on you know on one of the lines at my house while I was watching a movie, but you know that was very less. It was a lot less frequent, and I wasn't picking up my phone and, and being distracted other ways, and uh, and so. Yeah, I think that I was definitely able to focus a lot more on on one specific uh, piece of content at a time, you know, back then. Whereas today, maybe we have uh, you know something on on one screen and we're looking at our phone at the same time. I know that there's been a lot of talk in the industry about uh, more casual viewing and shows that you can kind of have on for ambiance and 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 things like that. So that's that's a very interesting thing to think about. You know, when we were talking about how there are things from the '80s that are coming back uh, with reboots, are there any shows that or movies that you loved as a kid that, if it got a reboot, you would love to work on that? Yeah, uh, there absolutely are. <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I've I've been following Cobra Kai very closely. I'm a big fan of what they're doing on their show, and I can't really say anything specifically about this, but there are some things that are in the works on my end where I'm trying to, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, pitch and work on some, some similar ideas. Uh, because I think that, like I said before, uh, I think that characters, uh, from films where we really were able to connect are uh, are sort of, uh, entry points into story and, and ways to create new opportunities for story. Um, and so I think that what, what the guys at Cobra Kai did is brilliant. Uh, and, and, you know, the work that they're doing on that show. And, uh, I think they're, they're doing it in a very smart way. Yeah, that's super cool. I haven't, I actually have not watched Cobra Kai yet because my girlfriend hasn't seen the Karate Kid movies and I haven't seen them in a long time. So I kind of want to rewatch them and then get into the show if, if, if I can, but then, you know, that's, it's, that's like an investment of time, I guess, for her. So we'll see if that happens. 
Yeah, you know, you may, you may actually surprise yourself. One of the great things I love about movies is that, uh, you know, the movie stays the same, but you change around it as you as you grow up. I've watched countless movies over the past few years and seen something new that I had never seen before or noticed something new that I had never noticed before. And it's because I'm seeing it with totally different eyes, right? I'm seeing it, I'm not seeing it as someone who's in their 20s or, you know, uh, or even teens. I'm seeing it as someone who's older. So even if it's a, a brief interaction between two characters, maybe something going on in the background, uh, a piece of a particular story arc that I didn't necessarily uh, understand, or even a line that I didn't hear the right way, uh, are things that I can now see differently and appreciate uh, a second or third time. For sure. I mean, the, my favorite movie was a movie made in 1985. And so culture was very different. And while certain aspects of that movie are not a surprise to me, because I watch it every year, um, <laughs> and I've seen it uh, hundreds of times, uh, there's nothing that's really a surprise to me necessarily. But I do have a different mindset now because I have changed. And that movie is staying the same. And there's something that is comforting about that when you can go back and watch it. But then there's certain things where you're like, huh, that person was being really inappropriate. <laughs> and I didn't really see it that way when I was a kid watching this movie. I also remember as a kid watching movies where maybe something, you know, happened to the characters that was sad or I didn't like. And I always remember watching a movie a second or third time and hoping that it would be a different, you know, there would be a different ending, but it would always yeah. be the same. So, uh, you know, I think that also speaks to what I was talking about before and really being invested in the characters and their journeys and, and identifying with their, um, with their arcs and their struggles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been able to work on a number of really great projects and, and in various roles as well. You've been a writer's assistant and I'm, uh, and and that was, let me just actually, just so the listeners hear it, uh, before we get into the ins and outs of the roles, let's just talk about some of the stuff you've worked on. Uh, you've worked on AP Bio as a script coordinator um, and also Bones. Uh, you've worked on that show. You were uh, an assistant to, an, a, to a producer on that show, correct? Yes, yes, for uh, almost three seasons there. Yeah. And uh, Soul Man, your writer's assistant on that, you worked on Ground Floor as well. The TBS show had uh, Roy Scoville, one of the uh, big co uh, comedians who worked on that show. But of course, it was created by Bill Lawrence. Uh, so you've seen a lot of stuff. You've worked with a lot of really great people. Obviously, that shows what you're capable of, but also it means you've seen and learned a lot uh, from uh, working in all these different roles, uh, which is what I think really cool. Um, so when you're a writer's assistant, I was wondering what exactly that role entails. Sure. That's a great question. So let me just first say that when I was working at Bones, I actually uh, started reading Malcolm Gladwell and was really fascinating, uh, fascinated with uh, not only what he wrote, but the way that he wrote it. And I actually read his entire archive from the New Yorker took me about three or four months because they're very sizable articles and there are many of them. But it was really an enjoyable experience because, again, the content was fantastic. But what I really was looking for was I was trying to break down the way that he wrote uh, and mm. to understand his process and the way that he presented material because it was so appealing to me to read. 
Uh, and, and, you know, then I read his books and became uh, fascinated with this idea of the 10,000 hours of mastery, which I think has become part of, uh, you know, our talk in, in about career and life in, in society. And so, uh, you know, I, I decided that I was going to make my job be my goal and sort of double down on the working in the place that you ultimately want to be. Uh, so that because I knew that I was going to be spending, uh, you know, let's say eight to 16 hours a day working on TV shows. So if you divide that, you know, into 10,000, you're actually not looking at a ton of time if you're actually devoting those those hours. Uh -huh. um, you know, and it was very hard work and it and, and continues absolutely to be very hard work. Uh -huh. um, but I think that in all of these experiences, there is a skill set that you're developing uh, as uh, a writer's assistant, script coordinator, and a writer. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a unique knowledge that you gain from each show that you work on, because I think that each show does things differently from from others. And you're also, I think, at a point able to say, okay, well, here are some of the things that seem to be universal in any room on any show and then here are some of the things that may be different on this particular show oh interesting um, and so what are some so of the, the things uh oh sure. not to cut you off but what are what are a couple of things that are universal well so i think there's a there's a general uh rule for how not a, i won't say rule but a general idea of how writers rooms work uh how people share uh, their ideas, how they give feedback on other people's ideas, and how you're able to create something uh, in a in a you know uh, a certain period of time with a lot of voices and a, lit a lot of different ideas in the room, sort of uh, you know uh, an ideation factory, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of the best rooms that I've been in really uh, were able to achieve a level of flow in their in their work where uh, things just came out very naturally and everyone was able to contribute and, and, um, and felt listened to and heard in the process. And so I think that's something that I, I think, you know, a lot of people are keeping in mind on various shows. Uh, but, you know, there are different, there are also different ways that people do it. Um, you know, sometimes people are working on stuff together in larger groups. Sometimes things are broken up. Sometimes will, people will go off and do certain things on their own. You know, it's really a question of how uh, how things are divided up on each particular show. And, and that differs. That also differs uh, between comedy and drama. You know, uh, one of the things that's different about the writer's assistant and script coordinator job traditionally in comedy and drama is that in comedy, the script coordinator does spend a lot of time in the writer's room. Uh, and they, they actually do a lot of the same things that the writer's assistant uh, do because being in the room on a comedy it really is a, is a, there's a lot more time I think spent, uh, working on scripts as a group. And so those hours need to be split up, uh, you know, more efficiently within the department, um, on, on dramas traditionally. And by the way, this is not a rule. A lot of script coordinators do spend time in the room on dramas, but I think more traditionally script coordinators, uh, on dramas will, will more work on scripts that are ready to go out and to send them to distribute them uh, to the to the cast and to the network and and producers. And so uh, a writer's assistant will probably spend more of the time in the room on a drama. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, and I was wondering, you know, like the differences. So you you 
uh, also explain that well. And, and a script manager versus a script coordinator, because you've also been a script manager, what is that difference? Yeah, so uh, when I was a script manager, I think it was just a difference in what the title was uh, ah. at the place that I was working at the time. But I will say that, you know, uh, as a script coordinator on certain shows, you, you definitely uh, are responsible for uh, supervising direct reports, uh, whereas other shows you may, uh, other positions you may not be. Uh, so there, there is, uh, there is more of a managerial role involved in, in, uh, you know, uh, managing and delegating, uh, the workflow to, to direct reports on shows. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who are saying, oh, wow, I didn't know it was that complicated or, or that multi-layered, uh, because I'm, there are people who think like, yeah, people just write it, right? They sit down, they write it, and then they hand the script to the director and the actors, right? Isn't that all it is? But there's there's a big team behind these shows. Absolutely, you know, one of the one of the uh, areas of television that because I've worked in in most, if not all, areas of television, but one of my favorites is the the traditional multi camera sitcom uh, space. And that's because I really enjoy the the uh, the nuances of the workflow. You know, uh, hmm. talking about you were talking about the process of it all. You know, uh, a script will be written, and then we will read it at a table with all the cast, and then we'll go back and rewrite that script based on the read that we saw at the table. Then the next day, the 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 uh, cast will rehearse on stage with the director. We'll go and we'll see a, a run through of the material. Then we'll go back and rewrite the script again. Uh, and then, you know, the next day, traditionally, again, not a, not a rule, but traditionally how it works is then the network will come and see uh, a run through and then we'll we'll see there. We'll get their feedback and we'll also maybe see things we didn't see the day before. So it really is, uh, you know, a, a process. And I, I think it's a it's a wonderful process because it allows you to. Uh, to really find what works in your in your story and in your episode, and to really hone in on those moments and and really make them shine. So, uh, you know, I really do enjoy that that process. Uh, you know, not to say that there aren't other things that I love about other areas of, of right. business, other ways of producing content, but I do enjoy that uh, you know uh, live performance element of of the multi camera sitcom workflow. Uh, because it, it does really seem to me like the closest thing to a to a stage play. Um, oh, very cool! Yeah, where you're, where you're where you're really interacting with the material uh, real time. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very cool. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of theater actors have been able to transition to the multi camera stuff. Well, is because the way it's shot um, is is probably the closest to being like theater. Um, because they yeah. just do a long take and <laughs> everything. Um, whereas sometimes yeah, in film, at, it's you, not like that. Yeah, if you look at some of the older uh, the older sitcom scripts, you know, you would have scenes that would go on for pages and pages and pages uh, yeah. because you know, it was just all, it was just a bunch of people, you know, sitting around in one set who were who were just having a conversation with each other. Cheers uh, comes to mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been, I've been so lucky over the course of my career to be mentored by some of the writers from Cheers. And, oh, uh, cool. you know, I absolutely, um, I absolutely think about those, those lessons, um, you know, in my own writing. Oh, that's cool. There's something that's, and maybe it's just because 
I'm a child of the 80s, but there's, uh, there is a warm blanket sort of feel that Cheers and shows like that can give me. And maybe it's just because it was what was on when I was a little kid, but that stuff is also very good. And it was very well made um, through and through. And, uh, and I love the acting style of that era. Oh, well, I shouldn't say acting style um, because there are some like modern things that I like too, but I like that feel like it's continuous and like it's real life. I, I like that feel that actors back then really gave to performances. And it, it happens every so often now, but um, I love that about those old shows, that theater feel to it. Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, more now than ever to really uh, be looking around and to see what works or what has worked at different times and to really uh, sort of find ways to employ that in our in our art, right? Um, you know, because all, all we have is our experience, right? And, and you know, we're, we're the ones who have to decide, you know, hey, that was that was something that was a great idea or a way of doing something that really worked um, and to to use those tools to tell our own stories. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I would love to, hearing you talk about being in a writer's room, I would love to just see the process at SNL and then see what it feels like at the different late night talk shows. Because I've, I've not been in those rooms and I'm just curious as to what the process looks like and feels like so I can try to emulate it as much as I can when I'm trying to create my own comedy. I feel almost like it's the... Uh, the work process is almost like a staring at a blank page and not knowing what to write. It's like the equivalent to that feeling sometimes when I sit down and try to figure out ideas. Yeah, I mean, what I will say about about what you just said is that you know I think the most important thing uh, when you're when you're creating anything is really just to start. Uh, you know, I, I know that you know this is something that's talked about a lot in the business, but. Um, you know, I definitely think there's a kind of a building a sandcastle component component to creating uh, materials, creating stories for me. Uh, and, and most of the time that starts with a spark of a thought, you know, um, the way that I usually ideate and create stories is I'm always looking for uh, a universal thought that I think either people are all having out in the world at any given moment or a thought that maybe people have all had at a certain time that may be relevant in the world. Um, and, and, and then once I have that, then I can start building characters and perspectives and a world around that. And so I think a lot of my time is spent thinking about what those thoughts may be. I actually, uh, just recently started sort of doing that short form on Twitter. And that seems to have been a really popular, um, you know, way of sharing content, uh, is, is finding those universal thoughts that I think people identify with and grab onto, um, you know, and, and so once I have that, the thought then can then really become any form, um, you know, and just because I've worked, uh, a significant amount of my career in, in, in film and TV, often it becomes a, a, a you know, a television script, uh, or maybe an idea for a movie. Um, but you know, a lot of ideas can just be one beat tweets or one beat jokes, uh, and, and whether you, see a road in front of them for development into something that is longer form is, uh, is a question for whoever's making that decision and what they, what they see in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm 
curious about what you were saying about Twitter, about how that's been helpful for you to find, you know, kind of what people are experiencing and feeling so that you can uh, then have material, basically. I mean, is that is that really a fair way to put it, to say that it's it's a way you're finding material or, or finding things to write? Or is it more about how to express yourself? I think for me, it was more of a realization that 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 is something that people are looking for, is they're looking for an idea that they identify with, that they uh, feel aligned with, and they're voting with their with their phones, right? And they're reacting real time um, to those ideas. You know, there are so many jokes that, you know, and this is something that I've learned over the course of my career. There are so many jokes that make us laugh and giggle and, 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 you know, emote in different ways. But I think some of the best jokes that I've heard are ones that make me laugh, but also I'm like nodding my head along because it's (laughs) like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I've been through that or I've seen that or, you know, that's, did had that yesterday, did that yesterday. Right. Uh-huh. You know, and so uh, I think people are, are, are sort of voting now online oh. with their, with their buttons, with their likes, with their retweets. And I really like to see that feel that feedback because uh, you know, it really shows me that, you know, the material is working and that you can get a direct response from the marketplace. So it's it's very exciting. It's also obviously uh, something you have to think a lot about before you put something out there because yeah. there's that limited amount of time. But I do try to take great care in, in the things that I'm sharing online, and you know yeah. I think that's something we all have to do these days. Oh yeah, um, I think not enough people are taking great care in what they're putting online. Um, I I do love the humor that. Yes, it makes me laugh, but I'm also nodding my head to it like, yep, I've done that. And I actually just had that experience yesterday because um, my girlfriend, girlfriend of the show, Justina, and I have both been models for Reductress. And um, uh, one that she was, that they they used a picture of her for was um, basically, I can't remember the exact way it was worded, but it was basically saying, woman just spent 40 minutes delving into a Twitter beef <laughs> that uh, of people they don't know or something like that. And it was like, yeah, I wasted my time like that yesterday. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's my, it's a picture of my girlfriend, but it's really me that this reflects because <laughs> I'm the one who does that between the two yeah, of us. Absolutely. I, I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head. And I, I think some of the best places, uh, you know, online blogs and publications are, finding those, uh, you know, those universally, uh, connective moments in life and, and, and bringing people together, uh, creating content around those ideas. And so, you know, I think, I think there's some fun in the specificity of it all. I think the onion really nails it a lot of the time with specific headlines that are, uh, that, that are very, uh, well-developed, maybe longer headlines, but there's also fun in the very general, uh, thoughts. And I think, you know, in my experience, some of the more general thoughts are also uh, maybe more uh, applicable to, to development, right? Oh, so, yeah. uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I wrote a, I wrote a, a script that became a book uh, years ago, and it really just be, it, it became a story that was based on the idea of is life fair, right? Is, 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 are things fair, Right. And so from that very idea, that, that small idea, 
came this world of uh, characters who represented different perspectives and, and points of view on that idea and a story that was woven around this sort of uh, backbone of is life fair. And so, you know, you, you can get into these, uh, these longer uh, developments of, of these ideas and, and really explore them through story. Whereas I think something that's much more specific, like your example of, you know, a uh, person spends 40 minutes engaging in Twitter dial, and that may be actually a better sketch or a, a punchline of a joke, uh, something that maybe is less than five minutes. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. And, you know, you, you've written sketches. You, you did at UCB. I did, I did the right. program there and, uh, and, and, you know, had some great teachers there. Uh, I think at the time I was, uh, I was maybe going to make a go of trying to, uh, to write for SNL. And I, mm. you know, had some people who were uh, loosely connected to the show at the time and was, was definitely writing a ton of sketches um, you know, I learned some great lessons there about how to think about, uh, how sketches are created, how you come up with that initial idea, which I think, like I said, is a universal, uh, way of, of building stories, uh-huh. uh, and building content. And, and I also learned a lot about how sketches escalate and develop as they, as they move forward. Right. You think uh-huh. about different ways that a sketch will not only establish, what the game is about very early on, but then we'll try to build and develop on that game as the sketch moves forward. Uh, and, and, you know, I think you hear this a lot too, but it's important to know the rules so you know how to effectively break them. I think also you see a lot of sketches don't necessarily follow that pattern, but I think right. that the ones that don't find a way to lean into certain aspects of, uh, you know, sketch building that, you know, maybe... Uh, hit on a few more laughs as you as you move forward because it's also important to remember why we're doing these things why we're why we're making content it's it's for the people so right right you mentioned to me before when we talked um off off air uh, about an snl sketch that you loved because of the writing style of it um, but I didn't. I didn't ever get a chance to see the sketch. But it was a cut for time sketch. Do you remember which one it was? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, a take on Queen's Gambit. And what I loved about it, just kind of speaking uh, about what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. was that it didn't necessarily follow uh, what I would consider the traditional, uh, you know, uh, way of of developing a sketch because it it kind of kept hitting on the same joke over and over. But I love that because it, they leaned into that. And for mm-hmm. me, in that particular uh, instance, for me, it, it had me, you know, really uh, laughing hard. Uh, it was essentially, I think this probably happens a lot uh, on SNL because I've worked in similar places where you you get to work with a piece of talent on a show and everybody's really excited to work with that particular person uh, mm-hmm. or animal or whoever, it, you know, whatever it is uh, <laughs> that you're the talent that you're working with and everybody has their own idea and they think that their idea is the best way to work with that particular talent. Mm-hmm. And everybody's just so excited to approach and pitch their idea that, that, you know, you end up with like 50 different totally random ideas for how to, how to approach it. And, and so that really, to me was, uh, an effective way to, to share this idea of, 
oh, we have this great piece of talent. Let's all pitch out our our ideas and maybe give people a glimpse into, you know, uh, a behind the scenes example of how things may work on shows sometimes when you have. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the sketch was basically uh, the star of Queen's Gambit was in her dressing room and each of the SNL writers and castmates were sneaking into her room to pitch her their idea for a sketch about Queen's Gambit. Mm-hmm. You know, Kate McKinnon comes in and she says, okay, I've got it. Ready? Queen's Gambit. And, uh, the, you know, she, the, the star of the show is kind of like, uh, what, well, isn't that the name of the show? And she's, no, 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 it's in the borough of Queens, right? And then all of a sudden you're in <laughs> It cuts to you're in Queens and Kate McKinnon is playing this woman who has a very strong Queens accent, but they're playing chess. And as the sketch, as the sketch continues, you, the, not only do people come in and share their other ideas for Queens Gambit, how they would twist the, the title and the idea, but they also become increasingly ridiculous. And I think that was something that they really did effectively, um, you know, because I think that was a, certainly a way that the, that the sketch built. Oh, nice. When you're writing comedy, what is it you're trying to go for? I, I would venture a guess that you are trying to connect with how people feel and, and what people can relate to. Is that something that goes into what you try to make sure you have in your comedy writing? Yeah. So what I love about comedy is that comedy has extra challenges for me in writing a script you have to write a great story that is emotionally satisfying for the people who are reading and or watching, but then it also has to be funny and it has to have jokes. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of shows, obviously every show does it differently, but most of the shows that I've worked on, we're, we're really trying to focus on getting the story down first. Uh, and once we have the story down and once we have a, you know, a first or second draft down that really has all the, the appropriate story beats and flows the correct way, uh, to sort of lead our characters and our viewers into the certain act breaks and moments we want to we want to showcase in the story, then we start pitching jokes that align with that story. Now there are a couple reasons that you do this. The main one being that jokes are very story specific. So if you uh, create a story and then you go see it on stage and maybe you have to tweak the story because it doesn't work the way that you originally intended, or you want to adjust a scene, or you want to change a beat to make something later. Uh, have more emotional resonance, then maybe you lose a joke that you spent three hours trying to come up with. And so you learn to kind of build the script piece by piece in a way that makes the most logical sense. Because honestly, let's face it, most of the time we're working on episodes that are going to be shot, you know, three days from when we're working on them. You know, this is how TV works. It's a very fast paced medium. So, you know, really finding a way to be efficient about how you do your work getting the story down first and then uh, and then doing passes for jokes where you're adding jokes based on the beats that serve the story. I love that approach. I really like that because sometimes when you watch something, it's a really basic story that is hard to relate to because, you know, they're, they didn't put much, much thought maybe into it or they're just like doing the paint by numbers thing with the story side of it. So it's sort of like, okay, this is just sort of low hanging fruit the comedy has to be really funny. And if it's not, then it could be like disappointing. Uh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I would almost appreciate 
something where the story is great and the comedy is okay. It's not low-hanging fruit comedy, but I'm not. It's also not like the funniest thing I've ever seen. Like I would much rather watch that than watch something where the story is kind of lame or or uh, just too basic. Yeah, and it's it also leads you to the question of um, you know which which one of the two is more subjective, right? right. And I, I think it's a good conversation to have. You know, I think that if you are an accomplished storyteller who can really find a, 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 an idea for an episode or a show that resonates with with most people, um, that you know, you you really can't lose, right? Mm-hmm. On that, um, the the jokes I think are something that are for me in my experience a little bit more subjective for each person, right? You know. Uh, you bring up SNL. I have countless conversations with friends about, you know, I'll think that a sketch was like the funniest thing in the world. Somebody, it may not be their thing. They may have liked a different sketch from the show, from an Mm -hmm. episode. Um, And we like these things for different reasons. I think it's, it's all based on our own personal life experience. But Mm -hmm. like I said before, the, the IP of the human uh, experience is really, I think how you, uh, how I most effectively build stories. And I think if you connect with people that way, uh, then the the connection and the humor comes from there. You know, I I know uh, I know I'm I'm probably not in my own company when I say that you know the office is is really an iconic show that I think we um, you know we all maybe agree on right uh, right yeah part of the reason why that show I think was so effective is because the characters were so strong in that show and they mm-hmm. all they all sort of embodied this point of view. Uh, that we not only recognized, but we we understood and wanted to follow. And, you know, I, I think when you watch a show like that, oftentimes you're laughing at things that aren't necessarily even jokes. You're just <laughs> laughing. You're laughing because you know a character's about to do something or they're about to say something or they make a face, right? You know, that's when you really know that you've hit on gold because yeah. you already have the audience laughing before you're even telling the jokes. For sure. That show was so relatable, and it really dialed up maybe the cringeworthy stuff, but it was stuff that people could relate to because everyone has had a boss that they sort of rolled their eyes about or uh, you know pined for someone who was unavailable romantically. You know, like we've we've had those experiences in deep ways, and that show really put that at the forefront. And it was Chef's Kiss good uh, for a few seasons there, several seasons. Um, there was one thing you mentioned a minute ago, a minute or two ago about cutting a joke that maybe you worked on for three hours. And of course, a lot of people have heard you can't get married to your idea. I mean, people have heard that in sketch writing and improv classes, like you can't get married to your idea. You have to accept the direction, the natural direction that things go or, or should go. And I mean, that's just a very universal thing in entertainment. Uh, you can't get so married to whatever that you're unwilling to cut. But how frustrating is it to work on a joke for a couple of hours and then realize, oh, I got to cut this joke? Like, is that is that annoying to deal with? It absolutely is. And yeah. I will say parts of that process never get easier. Mm. But the but I will, will also say that that's a very important lesson to learn as mm. a writer. Uh, and I think it's something that, uh, you can you can try to adjust your workflow to work around. Like I said before, you know, 
uh, on, on most of the great shows that I've worked on, we've, we've really worked hard to get the story down before we, before we hit the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody may pitch a joke very early on that we'll save, we'll keep in our pocket. And if it works within the story that, you know, we end up with later on in the week, we'll, we'll try to fit it in and make it work. But if it doesn't work, then it's not used because the jokes are there to serve the story. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, the other thing that's great about coming up with a funny joke that may not work in this particular story is that maybe it works in another story. And I think that yeah. some of the best writers that I know are able to put a joke in their pocket or put it in a file, however you, your, your brain and your organization system yeah. works. Um, and, and, and knowing that there's something there that can be used uh, for future material that, mm-hmm. uh, that is, is, is undeniable, just not for this particular project. Right. I believe I have these details right. There was a sketch that I think got cut on SNL that Larry David wrote, and he ended up using it on Seinfeld. Um, and, you know, it was like a pot, one of the most popular episodes of Seinfeld, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you know, I've never heard that story, but it absolutely would make sense to me if that, w- if that was something that happened, because... You know, I think there are there are also ideas that, you know, you you'll have, um, you know, I mentioned this book I wrote a a few minutes ago, Uh, that book I self published, it's on Uh Amazon, you know, and and that could absolutely become a TV show one day, right? Uh, Because I already wrote the script for it as well, you know, and so that's something that you sometimes things just take, you have to find the right moment for them. And so I think Part of being a writer, uh, certainly being someone who is, uh, you know, a more seasoned, established comedy writer is somebody who understands that uh, a great joke may be great in its own right, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily for this particular moment. Uh, and, and recognizing that and knowing that there's value in it, but also recognizing that the process is going to move forward without it. Uh, and, and also recognizing in a moment, maybe you're, if you're in a writer's room, that, that your joke that you thought was great, that isn't going to be used, that everyone's moving forward now. So maybe you should start pitching things that are going to be in the, in the show and in the story, um, and start to, you know, sort of get out of your own head and really come along because television is a very collaborative process. And I think some of the best writers who I've, I've worked with over the years understand that and value that and appreciate that and work toward that end, uh, knowing that their contributions are a part of the process uh, of making something great together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, uh, you know, one of the bedrock principles, of, you know, working together is one of the bedrock principles for improv for a reason, too. You know, like that's, that's what it is. It's this collaborative thing. And that does help you in other entertainment endeavors. Um, you mentioned your book. Let's talk about your book real quick. Uh, cause I know, um, you know, listeners are like, Oh, he wrote a book too. Oh my gosh. He's done so much. Uh, let's talk about that. What, what, uh, uh what made you want to write it? So, uh, the time that I came up with the idea, I think, you know, there were, there was a lot going on in the country and I think a lot of people were walking around and they were asking themselves this question of like, is life fair? And is there any rhyme or reason to how things happen to any one or two given people at any given day? And I came up with this idea of, uh, of exploring that in a, in a show. Um, and, and I think, I think at the time I was listening to a lot of Radiohead and was listening to the song Karma Police. And it just kind of hit me that uh, 
there would be an amazing show in the idea that there were actually karma police out there who were bringing people what's coming to them, whether good or bad, uh, and really making sense of the world and bringing fairness, uh, you know, behind the scenes. And so that's that's sort of the initial idea and how I started to develop to develop that world. Came up with some really great characters and uh, and put a pilot script together. Uh, shared that around town. Some people really liked it. I think at the time I was much younger and it was very early in my career. And I think the people who were reading it were also younger and it was early in their career. And mm-hmm. uh, after the fifth or sixth person told me specifically, write this as a book and self-publish it so that you will control the project from that point forward, uh, I, I said, hey, you know what? Maybe this is actually a really good idea. And it was actually a, a very freeing process for me. I had never written anything in that medium before, mm-hmm. but it flowed very naturally. I was able to essentially turn each scene into a short chapter and I ended up with a, with a novella. It's kind of a, you know, a quick one hour read because you're essentially reading a TV pilot in a narrative form. Hmm. Uh, and what was really fun about the writing process for me is that the medium of writing television scripts is very, the action is very constrained. Uh, you, you really want to make sure that when you're writing action, uh, that you're, you're describing things accurately, uh, and, and, and visually, um, making them visually appealing, but you're also not using a lot of space on the page. Right. And one of the big differences between scripts and books is that you can spend a half a page in a book describing what a room looks like or describing what a character is thinking, uh, or, you know, uh, something that they that they want, but not showing it like you would have to in a script. And so I really enjoyed that. It was it was kind of a way for me to get out of my own uh, comfort zone and do something new and 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 enjoy the differences in, in writing for different mediums. Mm. That's very nice. Where can people find the book? Uh, it's it's on Amazon. Great. Yeah. Um, what is something that aspiring writers don't realize is a part of the journey of becoming a writer. Yeah. Uh, so there's so many things. I think, I think the thing that I would probably want to tell people is something that I wish someone told me, which is that it, it really is like, it's a, uh, it's a journey. The whole thing is a journey at, at any level. And um, you know, it's, it, there's, I don't know that I've ever really felt like, Oh, I made it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, and I think that's kind of the work of all creative people. Uh, but especially for me in, in film and TV is that you, you'll work on something for a while, right. And you'll do certain things on that project and then that project will end. And then you sort of begin the process of getting your material ready, meeting with people in the industry, getting the word out on your own projects, but also your feedback on projects that are going that other people may have that, you know, and then, beginning the process of finding a new job, right? And right. creating something new for yourself. And so uh, it really is, uh, it really is a, a, a rough road and you mm-hmm. have to, you have to decide that that's what you want to do. Um, and it's not something that you decide once. It's something that you decide every day mm-hmm. uh, you know, because every day you're getting in front of that computer or however you write with that blank page and you have to write something new every day or every couple of days or whatever your routine is, um, you know, and that never ends at any level, at any point in your career, if you want to write or if you want to act or if you want to, you know, sculpt, whatever it is that your, your craft is, 
you, you have to find a way to, to constantly be doing it. And there, there are some things that I've read over the years that have really helped me in my own process. I'll give you an example. Um, I think it was Hemingway. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly. So don't quote me on it, but the, the, who it was, was not as important to what it was, which was, I think it was Hemingway who said that he never finished a chapter at the end of a day, a day of work. He would always leave the end until the next day, because that way he knew that when he started writing the next day, that he had something to write that he had already figured out oh. and maybe getting that momentum in writing what he would finish the next day would propel him into the next chapter because his brain would already sort of be working and moving. Um, oh, and so I always found that, always found that fascinating. Uh, and I'm always looking for, for ways to, uh, you know, to improve, improve upon my own process, if you will. Oh, that's cool. I, I thought it was interesting that you were saying you don't consider yourself to have made it. And, and that's maybe something that's just subjective for people. But what would you consider making it? That's a good question. Uh, I think it's, I think, I, I don't know if I've really wrapped my head around that yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I ever will. I think that is part of um, being a creative person is that there's always more to create. Yeah. You know? um, I will say that there have been moments in my career where I felt like I made it in other ways. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, I think that those are the moments that I'll never forget. I'll give you an example. So uh, I would say maybe 10, 12 years ago, I was working on a show uh, as an assistant, but I was, uh, I, was, I was with a lot of really legendary comedy writers in a, in a, a room where we were punching a script up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there was an opportunity to pitch a joke and I had an idea and I pitched it in the room. And, and, um, you know, I knew who a lot of these writers were because they were, again, they were pretty iconic people. And this one woman who I really just was like, I highly respected her and her work. And she was a hero of mine in the industry. She, she started hysterically laughing at my joke in the room, you know, a genuine, you know, real belly laugh. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I remember this feeling that I had that I was able to, to have this one person laugh at my joke, you know, and at the end of the day, she came over to me and introduced herself to me. And she said, you know, I haven't laughed like that in a while. Thank you. Oh, nice. And that, that to me, I mean, that's up there, right. You know, like any, any of my other accomplishments, you know, uh, I think pale in comparison to a moment like that. And there are a few moments like that where, where I think, that to me is, is I think what you're talking about, you know, maybe just not exactly the same thing. Um, you know, and, and certainly I was, I was very involved with, uh, organi- organizing the script coordinators and the writer's assistants. We were able to, uh, to negotiate a union contract, um, a couple of years ago. That was a big moment for me. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. you know, yeah. in a, in a weird way, it was kind of like, it, it had nothing to do with, creative work or jokes or stories, but it had to do with our own stories and knowing right. that people who are going to do the work that we did after us would, would not have to deal with a lot of the, the harder things that we had to go through because there were going to be improvements in pay and healthcare and pension contributions. Those types of things, I think really for me, uh, feel the closest thing to achievement and victory that, that I have found in my career. Mm. Yeah. And you're, then you mentioned you're in the guild, you're in WGA and, uh, you know, you've been a script coordinator and writer for Sydney to the Max, which is uh, a, a thing that's going, you know, it's like 
a thing out there. It's for, it's uh, the kids. The kid, you know, if you can write something for the kids, I feel like that's a uh, that's a form of making it. And and you know, but as as you're describing here, there are things that you look back on and you can say, oh, that was a good moment, or that was something, you know. But I I think you know maybe the way people look at what making it is or the importance quote unquote of making it uh needs to shift a little bit because there is a positive way and i think you have this the this perspective there's a positive way to engage with that whole making it thing because you know i've heard that uh, a lot of musicians when or, or singer songwriters if you ask them what they think their best song is then a lot of them have said, I haven't written it yet. And that's because it propels them to keep striving as an artist. And, and so it makes you not worry or think about the more frivolous accolades or you know, getting caught up in celebrity that uh, you know, people can get caught up in in the entertainment industry. And it keeps you focused on what's important, which is the art, which is the work. And I think when you're saying what you're saying of like, oh, I still don't consider myself as having made it as someone who is continuing to strive uh, and and work at it and work at getting better. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever you've probably heard this before that, you know, you should try to leave something something better than how you found it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think I think the story about the laugh and about what we were able to accomplish for people in the writer's assistant script coordinator craft, they, they both speak to that end. And I think the idea that you can keep improving on your craft and keep writing better jokes and better stories and better shows um, also speaks to that idea. Uh, and, and, and it also, I think, I think it also works because leaving something better than how you found it is an open-ended thing, right? Uh-huh. And it's something uh-huh. you can always be doing. Um, and so I think that really is what it all comes down to for me. Uh, yeah. in the work that I've done so far in my career. And, and those, those are the experiences that I, that I remember. And I think in remembering them, that serves as the proof that that's really what was meaningful. Cause what do you remember, right? What do you, yeah. what are the things that you, that you collect along the way? Yeah. What is the process of getting in WGA? That's a good question. So uh, there, the, the way that you get in, there are two levels of the guild. There's an associate membership and then there's a, you know, the full membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both based on, I believe, earnings in, in a certain medium, right? So it's, it's how much you make per uh, given period of time. You have to make it in a certain amount of time. So uh, for my show that I got in on, it was a, it was a cable comedy. Uh, you needed to write two scripts in a period of time to get in. Uh, and that was how I qualified for it. I think if you work on a network show, the amounts are higher so that uh, if it's like an, an hour long network show, one script, I think may be enough to get you in as a full member. Um, I, I will say that when I wrote my first script at that time, the first script was enough to get me in as an associate member, but the second one was the one that got me the full membership. So it's based on uh, in earnings in a particular period. and. You know, all of this uh, information is, I think, available online if people are curious to look it up. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I can't believe it. We're at the end of the episode. Uh, it's now time to create something together. And I have a couple of ideas. And one was what sort of advice you can give to someone who wants to be a writer or if what sort of advice you can give on how someone can get a 
a job in the writer's room, whether that is as a script coordinator or a writer, um, what which direction would you like to go with this? Does one pique your interest more than the other? Maybe uh, becoming a writer, I guess. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I think I think one one technique that was that was really meaningful and, and helpful for me was seeing what a television script looks like, hmm. trying to get your hands. And I think there's plenty of them available online, but really just looking through one, taking, taking some time to look through, you know, try to find your favorite episode of TV, try to find an, an uh, sorry, your favorite television show and hmm. an episode of that show. And then, you know, take an hour and just flip through it and try to notice how things are arranged and written the, the different nuances hmm maybe start to take a second hour the next day and start to look at how maybe different characters, their lines are written and the way that uh, the way that the words are arranged in the lines and on the page. And then if it is something that is your favorite show, uh, try to watch a show as an exercise um, and try to write, try to write the script of the show that you watch as an exercise to really feel what it feels like to write something that was shot, you know? Uh, I think that these were sort of exercises that I worked on when I was doing uh, my pro my writing program at UCLA after I graduated from Florida. And uh, the teachers in that program were fantastic because they were all working writers who some of them I would see, you know, when I was working at Fox, I would see one of my writers during the day or one of my teachers during the day who was running a show at Fox at the time. And he uh -huh. would, you know, teach class at night at UCLA. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people are people who are working in the craft who are giving this, this feedback. And, you know, I think it speaks to the idea of looking at writing as a craft, something similar to drawing or sculpting. Like I said before, it's an art that requires physical work. You know, you're creating, you're creating a, a physical product out of out of thoughts and ideas, and so uh, mastering that craft is essential to to mastery in in this uh, business. And I think that uh, you you want to be able to write a great script when when opportunity presents itself. So doing the work of of knowing how to write a great script is is part of your job as being a writing professional who's hopefully going to uh, to get some jobs and some opportunities to work in the business. There it is. This has been a great talk. Thanks so much for being on here, Aaron. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Very thankful that he joined us to talk all of that stuff about the industry. It's very insightful. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out what Aaron's got going on. You can go to his website, wienerarron.com, if you want to see all of the stuff that he's worked on and things that he's sharing there. You can also follow him on Twitter, at wienerarron, and Instagram, at Aaron underscore M underscore Wiener. Also, buy his book, Karma Police, on Amazon. We got links in bio for all of that. Don't forget to nominate us. We have a link in the bio for that as well. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at their it is pod and you can go to there it is pod.com to find out more about the podcast but also find out how you can subscribe to our comedy lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can we'd appreciate it until next time be good to each other the music for the theme song was created by neil brooks the rap was written and performed by nick acevedo the logo for there it is was created by jeff prater the there it is podcast is produced by jason farr